Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You uh, once again for Your Word, for Your Spirit, uh, for Your presence with us, for this church, for friends with whom to study. Uh, We ask, God, that You would now uh, draw us to Yourself. We have an important, uh, important passage to, to look at this morning, and we need Your help, Lord. We need You to uh, give us Your grace and to pour into us Your Spirit so that we may walk according to Your Spirit, be led by Your Spirit. And so we ask, Father, for You to give that to us today, uh, but for Your own glory and not for our own. Amen. Amen. Well, good to see you. You know, it's, it's, I was telling somebody earlier that it, there seems to be some people who um, come and get bacon and eggs, but they're really for the Bible study. And there's some people who come for the bacon and eggs, but and they just stick around for the Bible study. And we found out today who those people are. So, um, so uh, but it's really nice to have all of you uh, here today. We're taking a look uh, at Galatians, uh, chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 16 through chapter 6, verse 10. We're really going to spend most of our time with the works of the flesh and the, uh, and the fruit of the Spirit uh, in chapter 5. But uh, let me tell you a, a little bit about... Uh, Galatians, the, the letter to, to the Galatians, it's probably one of the very first letters that Paul wrote. In fact, um, it probably was written before the Jerusalem Council. So if we, we read, uh, we actually studied just a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 15. Paul comes, goes, Paul, first missionary journey goes to Galatia, which we call uh, sort of southern Turkey now. And, um, and he's going around planting churches in um, different, uh, different towns and villages there in Galatia. He leaves and he's coming back. He comes back to Antioch. And as he does so, he uh, hears that people have gone behind him in these churches that he founded in Galatia and have said, in, in order to be real Christians, real followers of our Jewish Messiah, uh, you need to be circumcised. And so he writes them back before the Jerusalem Council. Now the reason we think it's before the Jerusalem Council is because that would be a great appeal. Uh, That would be the easiest thing for Paul to appeal to. Look, the apostles in Jerusalem have spoken on this. You don't need to be circumcised. And and yet he doesn't do that. He doesn't make that appeal. So we think probably because he didn't have that appeal to make because he was before. So probably 47, 48 AD, something like that is when Paul is writing this. So the circumcision party, if you remember, uh, they were saying in order to be, in order to be a, a true Christian, in order to be a true follower of the Messiah, you have to follow the law of Moses. And, um, and so the, at issue, a lot of what we talked about last week in, in, in Romans, at issue is what is the place of the law? Uh, what does justification have to do with sanctification? Maybe a, a technical way to say it. What is... Uh, being made right with God have to say about uh, what effect does what that have on what we do or what does what we do have on uh, how, what favor we have with God. Do you understand the, I think, do you understand my, do you understand the, the problem that's going on there? Uh, Galatians is, I love studying Galatians in Lent because, I mean, Paul is fierce. Uh, you know, it's his first letter. He hadn't, he's not much of a pastor yet. He's, he, we, pastors, we have to make some, some mistakes before we, uh, we move forward. And um, I thought that'd be funny. See, I just made a mistake. But, the, um, 
But so Paul, I mean, he's a, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, he is right, he has some very, very pointed language. And, um, and, and, and because what is at stake for Paul is, is the cross of Jesus sufficient for our salvation? And by the cross, I mean the death of Jesus and the resurrection, the, um, the redemption we are offered in the life, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is that sufficient, or do we need to meet Him halfway? And of course, Paul has already taught the Galatians when he was founding those churches, no, we don't need to meet Him halfway. Even what we do is going to be tainted by um, some sort of selfishness, some sort of need to be patted on the back. Um, and, and so we are completely and wholly relying on the grace of Jesus for our salvation. And we respond to that in a way that looks a lot like the law, what it, re- is re- what it requires. Uh, grace creates what the law wants. So one thing to think, way to think about the law and gospel, the law is what we are to do according to the law of God, or to reflect the character of God. And the gospel is what has been done for us by God the declaration of what God has done. So there's law and there's gospel, and both are good. I want to be really clear. It's not that law is bad and gospel is good. Uh, they have, they're both good. They just have different roles. The law is to bring us to our knees and to say, you need a Savior. You need an intervener. And the gospel says, you have one. Right? So they, they both have their, their function. Now some would say, and I'm I, 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 sometimes hesitant, um, and I, for reasons I'll explain in just a minute, but some would say that then the law becomes, uh, takes on another use, not just to, to bring us to our knees that we need a Savior, but it then has another use, and that is that it, um, it shows us how we are to live, which is a really, you know, of course, I mean, that we want to please God, so we, we use that instruction. So chapter 5, as we get to chapter 5 uh, in Galatians, what we see is that Paul is talking about Christian freedom. Christian freedom. Now, when I think about freedom, I, I think of one particular uh, cinematic scene. What freedom? What do you think of? Braveheart. Braveheart. Right. Of course. Thank you, Josh Pressel. Always good for. Uh, we're on. Uh, the um, the uh, you know William Wallace. He's pit, like to a cross, but although it's it's uh, down, and he cries out, "Freedom!" Of course, I, I just I always think about that and Dave Ramsey. But that's another another line. The um, yeah. but the um, but. What he says is if you submit to circumcision, he's talking to the Galatians, if you submit to circumcision, uh, you're obligated to keep the whole law. You're saying, that I, you're, saying you're, you're Jewish. You're saying that the cross is not sufficient. Um, and, but he, he, he readily admits that gospel freedom creates a tricky line to walk. Gospel freedom creates a tricky line uh, to walk. There's two dangers. Let's say you've come out of a, um, a lifestyle that you're so glad that, that Jesus has bought you and brought you and redeemed you out of this uh, pagan lifestyle. Maybe, you know, you can think of the ancient um, Greeks and the pagan lifestyle they were living, or you can think of your own life and the life you were living uh, or have lived, um, and you're so glad to be out of that. So how? So what might you do to, to prevent that slide back into uh, that lifestyle? You begin to put up little boundaries. Well, I'm not ever going to 
drink like this, or I'm only going to drink this much, or I'm not going to use these words, or I'm not, I'm not going to use this tone of voice, or whatever. And you begin to put up fences that become rules and suddenly become laws, and you get we get to be quite legalistic about these things. And those who are uh, those who are not keeping the same rules and laws, we might look down on, unless they're doing them better than we are, and um, and then we look up to them, we feel shame. And all of a sudden we become legalists again. And we've slid right back into what Paul would call slavery to the law, bondage. It's condemnation. That, that, that's what. And, and we're free from the condemnation. Remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. Romans 8.1. So, that's one way we um, get to's, like, oh, I, I get to have a quiet time every morning. Becomes, now I have to have a quiet time every morning. And it becomes... I, I forgot and I feel totally ashamed or I did it but you didn't so I'm better than you. And so we become these little legalists. We start um, comparing with others and competing with others and now we become uh, this, these um, new Pharisees. Again, we're right back where we were. That's one side of the horse to fall off of. The other side is what Martin Luther called antinomianism. And that is a 50 cent word for uh, anti against nomos is the Greek word for law. It's, you're, there is no law. Total license. That's the other. When we think of freedom, we think of the soup dragons, right? That's another. That's what you were thinking of. The soup dragons. No. Nineties Scottish rock band. No. I'm free to do what I want any old time, right? So the the lead singer of the soup dragons, his name was uh, Sean Dixon. He ended up being a total wreck. I'm free to do what I want any old time. And he just, uh, he was, you can read his story, but he was uh, a total wreck. He's kind of turning it around uh, these days. But I, I thought about that. Um, that's, that's what we think of, especially our culture thinks about freedom. Uh, I have no boundaries at all. And my response to that is not one that I made up, but one that I heard. But think about a fish. You say, I'm free. I'm free. Uh, that fish is free. And... Uh, you take that fish out of the water. I'm no longer constrained. Take that fish out of the water. Is that fish free now? No. So f- Christian freedom is not freedom from restraints, but freedom to, to the proper restraints. Yes, ML. There used to be a bumper sticker that says, if it feels good, do it. There used to be a bumper sticker that said that? Yes. Yeah, if it feels good, do it. Yeah, I have that bumper sticker. Um, the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Christian freedom is not freedom from any constraints, but freedom to the proper restraints. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So, actually, we, we start doing, we actually do both of these. We fall off both sides of the horse at the same time all the time, okay? Um, and, and I'm going to be, I'm going to draw broad brush strokes and talk about liberals and conservatives. And you can, you can take it for what it's worth, or you can um, send, me, send me an email. Uh, but, yeah, so broadly, um, people who consider themselves liberal uh, tend to have a broader moral license, right? A, little, a, a sense of freedom, but you must, and here's the legalistic part, be inclusive, right? You, we'll accept anybody except those who don't accept everybody. 
And so, uh, and so we, that becomes a moral law. You may say, uh, you may not say that one thought is better than another. Now that happens to be a thought that claims to be better than another, but um, that, that, is, that is the way that that side of things often falls off both sides of the horse. That there is a broader sense of freedom, a moral license. Now, on the other side, conservatives are morally stricter. There's a lot of musts, a lot of oughts. Here's how we are to live in order to have self-control or whatever. But where's, the, where's their freedom? To judge those who are not as good or strict or, or as smart. Or, not always smart. But there's lots of judgment. And what, I, what I'm trying to say is that we all, whatever you see yourself as, we tend to fall off both sides of the horse. We create fences for ourselves in legalism. We create freedoms for ourselves that we justify. And, um, and none of us gets out alive, uh, essentially, is what I'm trying to say there. Paul says in verse 13, yes. Can I say something? As long as it's not political. Yes. Well, <laughs> it kind of sort of is, but it isn't. What happens is, it doesn't matter which side you're on, yeah. it's sort of like a pendulum. pendulum swings more this way or this way, but it never goes to the center. That's what I learned. So no matter whether you're a liberal or, or conservative, you're either this side or this side, but you're never in the center anywhere. And that's sort of the problem because the two don't ever move. Well, I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. And part of that is just because of the way our, our brains work. Right. Um, and, you know... It doesn't always feel like the middle is the right place to land on any given issue, but I mean, certainly Christian liberalism and conservatism uh, are not the same as as a gospel mentality, and and we need to be very careful not to uh, deify um, or uh, Christianize, uh, justify our political leanings. They're just two two different things. I just wanted to kind of use that as an example. Paul says in verse 13, so we're, we're, our passage, E100 passage, actually starts in verse 16, but he says uh, in verse 13, you are called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity through, for the flesh. So, you're free, but you have now to be a steward of your freedom. It's not, I'm free to do what I want. Well, it is, I'm free to do what I want any old time, but now what I, what I have to want as a Christian, is to want what God wants. So I am free to do what I want as long as I want what God wants. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what Paul says. So he's trying to say that there is, riding the horse the right way is a really difficult thing. It takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of discipline. We're going to fall off and we're going to always need grace. Right? So what we are free to do is to love God and love our neighbor. What we're free to do is to love God and to love our neighbor. Um, in other words, we're free to do the fulfillment of the law. Right? That's what, that's what Paul is saying. So the rest of chapter 5, which is our section, is about the competitive opposition between the flesh and the spirit. Paul says... But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the flesh against the Spirit. That's what, that is the section that we are in. That's the section where we talk about the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit 
are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So let's define flesh and spirit. Flesh does not only mean skin. Nor does it mean what we might think more carnally, uh, sexuality. Uh, but flesh, in the, word, in the way that Paul is using it, the Greek word is sarx, um, like a sarcophagus. That's where we get that word. But the um, sarx, and it means the, any natural inclination of the fallen human nature. Any natural inclination of our fallen human nature. Whether we do the wrong things for the wrong reasons, or we do the right things for the wrong reasons, there's still the flesh. Um, the flesh is Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Okay? Uh, and so it may be very successful in worldly terms. It may be very attractive. It may be uh, even morally right. It could be dark and terrible. It could be socially acceptable. Um, but it is the natural inclination of our fallen human nature. It is uh, the way to discern that. I mean, we're going to look at the list of it, but the way to discern that is, am I stamping my foot and saying, I want my way? Or am I submitting myself uh, to the Word of God? So, the flesh says, I'm in control, and I'm going to do this, or I'm, I'm not going to submit, submit myself to that, or I think that's outdated, uh, or um, because it's, you, know, you can't, take it, take, can't take the Bible literally. Uh, and, and, and all of those, may be, those things may have their place, I guess. But ultimately, who's on the throne of our hearts? Who's on the throne of our hearts? The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. So what is the Spirit? So if the flesh is the natural inclinations of our fallen human nature, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have anything to do with our nature. It's the nature of God. It's the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, living, actively living in us, through us, around us, before us, behind us. Um, I think that there is a, there's a moral conflict because we, we have the flesh and we have the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, but you certainly know that you have the flesh, right? It's not that flesh has not been completely mortified, uh, and to use the um, reformers' words, we haven't put those things completely to death. We are, we have that tension, and I think, at least in my experience, um, that there is a moral conflict experienced by Christians in a way that is more intense than that of non-Christians. Which is, I'm not saying that non-Christians don't experience moral conflict, um, but if um, but I, I think when we, have, when we want to do God's will and we don't, that imposes a layer of obligation and um, sometimes guilt and sometimes just moral tension in us that, um, that others don't have to deal with. And um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, or maybe I'm saying it in a way that's offensive, but uh, I hope not. Um, because what I'm just saying is I, I want to recognize that, that it is, uh, that's part of the Christian life. Is to, is to struggle with what we are to do and to come again and again and again uh, before the throne of grace and to be corrected. Sometimes we think we're doing the, wrong, the right thing and it turns out not to be the right thing. We did it in good conscience, but it wasn't right. Sometimes our views on things change over time. Um, sometimes we have habits that, just, that we need to get control of. 
they weren't necessarily, I, you know, you know what I mean. There's just this tension. Anybody want to help me out here? Because I feel like I'm kind of babbling. It's conflict. It's, it's conflict. It's conflict. Yeah, no doubt. You want to do the right thing, but you, let's just say, for instance, for me, I can, can't use anybody else but myself. I have a short fuse. And even though I don't want to have a short fuse, and I try not to have a short fuse, it comes out anyway. And then mm -hmm. you feel bad. So but then you feel bad about it. Don't like test it, Larry. Don't test it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. The, the non-Christian gets to say, well, that's just how I am. Deal with it. The Christian has to say, it's how I am, but that's not how I want to be. That's not how I want to be. I apologize. I'm sorry. Right. And, and, and so you always have this conflict because you try not to do it, and it's like you're, you're tested on a daily basis. And I find myself sometimes, even though I know I can feel it rising up and I'm gritting my teeth and I'm like, the dentist is going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're right. So, but but it's, you're torn. You, mm -hmm. you, you, it's, it's your inner self. It's, it's part of your makeup that you're trying to change, but it's, it's hard. Yeah, and so even the non-Christian may certainly feel a sense of, I need to go to that person and apologize. I mean, I, of course they may. But the Christian also has to go to God and say, I did it again. Yeah. I'm sorry. So there's this, there's this sort of extra layer uh, there. Um, so, but, but actually, so Paul recognizes this and he kind of begins to take that away by saying, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 18. He's taking away the guilt, but, uh, but now what? Right? Can I just do whatever I want? Because there is, if there's no law, there's no sin, he says before. Can I just do whatever I want? Yes. But. <laughs> the Christian, led by the Spirit, governs what they want according to what Christ wants. It's not a bait and switch. Yes, you don't have to follow the law, but here's the new law. Right? It's what cop is. What it is not a bait and switch. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. You think about any relationship that you have, uh, there's, there's some rules that come with that relationship in order to govern the, the goodness and the sanctity of that, that relationship. There are some things that I do within my marriage that aren't like legal obligations, I mean, you know, but it's just what I do so to honor my wife. I mean, think about like, you know, I'm not under a legal obligation to be kind, you know, but, um, and sometimes I... I don't here, but I am. Um, but but I'm I am under a relational obligation. So that's it's a relationship. Um, Paul pits the flesh and the spirit against one another. But I th actually one thing that I think is really extraordinary about how he does this is he pits the works of the flesh against the fruit of the spirit. You, you might think it's the works of the flesh against the works of the spirit, or the works of the flesh against the works of the Spirit-led person, or the fruit of the flesh against the fruit of the Spirit, or something like that. But it's not, it's the works of the flesh against the fruit of the Spirit. What we do naturally, the works of the flesh, is pitted against what the Spirit grows in us supernaturally. So, one thing to consider there is that if I'm just focusing on myself and my own sanctification and I'm, not, and I'm trying not to do all those things, I'm still looking at myself. <laughs> I 
I think what Paul would rather us do is look at the Spirit, to look at Jesus and to be obsessed with Christ Himself and to actually kind of forget about ourselves. And then sort of in retrospect, we'll see that the Spirit has been working in our lives. So, he says, Here are the, these are the works of the flesh. And it's not meant to be a, a comprehensive list. The works of the flesh are evident. That is, they, they can be seen. They're outward. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, um, just with fits of anger or envy, and perhaps with uh, division and drunkenness, um, he's got us, right? We're on the list. Now, uh, you may not have some of these other things uh, on your list. I do want to say sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. These, These are sort of things about sexual immorality actually um, translates two words, one meaning adultery, one meaning fornication. That word is um, uh, porneia. That's where we get the word pornography from. It's any sex outside of the bonds of marriage is is essentially what he's saying. Um, The uh, sensuality is, is, um, I think King King James translated that uh, lasciviousness, like it's uh, just lust. and actually, the biblical word for lust isn't isn't actually sexual. It just means I have to have it, any, anything. But that's the way we often are with with sexual things. Then he moves to um, what use chocolate? <laughs> with chocolate. Um, okay, maybe. Um, the uh, uh, then he moves to uh, the religious idolatry and sorcery. We think, well, I'm at sorcery. I'm I'm safe there. I, you know, there's palm readers out there. I mean, there's there's tarot cards, there's you know Ouija board. What's that? Astrology. Astrology, like yeah, it's right there in the paper. Um, careful. Um, idolatry, uh, maybe the brazen, just outward worship of other things. But then you know, it's anything. You know, we've talked about this before. Anything that you have to have in order to have a sense of fulfillment or worth about yourself. Um, you know, money or power or. Uh, relationships or um, status or the envy of others or whatever it is. That's, you can make idols out of all those things. John Calvin said famously, our hearts are idol factories. Um, then he moves to relationships, rivalries, um, where, where am I? See, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Enmity. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, it's basically we're, we're at odds with one another. We're enmity with one another. We are. Um, we we need. We are. Our relationship is broken. Oh. We're at odds. Yeah. Strife. But enmity has such a strong thread of hate. Yeah. In, uh, ML said enmity has a strong thread of hate. Now I did not actually look up the in the Greek to kind of see where else this is used. And, and so, um, but but I, I, think, I think you're right. In English, it's the same root as enemy. Enemy yeah. in the same root, yeah. Yeah, you can hear that word in there. Um, so any division, I mean, we're made to be together, right? I mean, any division is, is a work of the flesh. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of hard to hear. There's a, I mean, look at the church. 
There's plenty of division in the church. How do, how do, how do Protestants grow? Division. <laughs> um, and then he, then he talks personally. Drunkenness. Uh, you might actually lump, lump envy in there. Uh, orgies. Well, that might go with the others. Um, and, uh, and, but he's, and things like this. Anything where, where you're on the throne of your own heart. Oh, and this is this is just something that should be chilling because you're probably not on every li- one of those. Uh, you're not checked off on every box on that list, but you're on the list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Gulp, right? So the word "do" the, those who do those things, the tense in the original language is. Those who do and continue to do those things. Those who do those things defiantly. Uh, those who um, are still doing. It does not indicate a, a sense of lapse, like, oh, I had a, another fit of anger or uh, jealousy or anything. You know, um, it doesn't have a sense of struggle, like I am jealous, but I don't want to be jealous, uh, like you were like talking about just a minute ago. Uh, it is those who say, this is what I'm about. Uh, I have the right to do these things. Again, as, as Paul said in, uh, to the Corinthians, all things are lawful, not all things are helpful. Right? So when you're, when you're saying, no, God, I'm going to be on the throne in this area of my life, that's, that is a, that's a bad situation to be in. What you're saying is, I'm, not, I'm, I'm choosing myself and not you, God, which is ultimately hell. I'm not choosing you. I'm choosing myself. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that hell is the is the total fulfillment of that great desire to choose yourself. Um, but now, here's what's so interesting. Here's the fruit of the spirit. Now, it's now Tim Keller makes a point of saying it's not the fruits of the spirit. Nine different things that the spirit does. It's like sections of an orange. It's one fruit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. And then my kids go, I know, gentleness and self-control. <laughs> gentleness and self-control. His point, Tim Keller's point is, try having love without joy. Try having peace without having patience. Try having patience without having peace. I mean, you can white-knuckle it, maybe. His point is that they all come together. My point in saying that we need to look at the Spirit and not look at ourselves, these are not things we're like, today I'm going to be loving. I mean, you do need to pay attention to yourself. But if you want to be loving, look at love. If you want to be joyful, look at joy. In all of the resurrection, uh, look. Uh, if you, I mean, you think about love as, as the height of love being in the, given the crucifixion, look at Jesus. If you want joy, look at the resurrection. If you want peace, look at the Holy Spirit being given to you. Look at Him. If you want gentleness and kindness, look at Jesus uh, at the woman of the, at the well. If you want self-control, uh, look at uh, Jesus as a woman is rubbing perfume on His feet. If you anything that you, look at Jesus. And you will see these things grow in your life. 
if you look at yourself, you will find yourself looking at others too. Um, I th- we can go through, there's plenty of studies that go through and really do a in-depth study on each of these fruit of the Spirit, these sections of this. Um, I do think that there is great value in that, but I think if we are to, I think what we want to look at is the, is the person of Jesus and how He fulfills each one of these things, with a humble prayer to say, "Lord, make me like that." Yes, Charlene. I'm, I'm conflicted, and not in a bad way, but talks about rage and lack of patience, and I, I, I still can't help but see Jesus in the temple when He's throwing out the money changers. And he's, he's really kind of having a fit of anger. I mean, it's, it's because he's honoring his father. Mm-hmm. But yet it, sh- it shows his humanness. So not that anger, fits a rage, are appropriate, but in defense of goodness, I mean... Well, I think, so Charlene has said that um, what about Jesus in the temple and the fits of anger and the lack of patience that he had? Um, and that's a great point. And I think that this would be fits of anger for unrighteousness. I mean, you know, daggum it, I didn't get my way. Daggum it, the stock market did this. Whatever it is, you know, your dog pooped on my lawn. Whatever it was. But I don't think it's talking about, you know, in, you know uh, against human trafficking, for instance. Like, we can have anger about, about that, about blasphemy or something like that. But... Then, you know, even Paul says, and he's actually quoting the Old Testament, in your anger, do not sin. Right? So, it's good that we can have anger, but boy, that's a slippery slope. Right. Yeah. Yes, Paul. One that I have a hard time with is understanding is long-suffering and how that's explained. Long-suffering. So, that's the word that the King James translates patience, uh, is long-suffering. It's not like you're in the doctor's office and they're taking a few extra minutes. This is maybe sometimes years uh, of of waiting uh, for, you know, you're praying and you're praying and you're praying for long-suffering. Uh, so what, what is the question? I mean, what's your struggle with? Is this just something you struggle with? Well, me personally, I'm just thinking yes. that I think a lot of people seeing when they go through cancer, go through a death, go through all the many things, but as Christians, how did Christ, being Christ-like, how we got to go through that and be ministered through that? Mm-hmm. You know, I, so I think that and I'm no, I'm no champion at long suffering, you know, by by any means. But I, I do think that knowing that life comes on the other side of death, um, literally and figuratively, that there's always a new day, that there's always hope, that God is not done until He says He's done. Um, that allows us at least to keep going. Um, I don't know that I'm really helping that, but I, I mean, I think it, when if you say you're not great at long suffering, like you're not alone. Right? Being Christ-like, I need to be. Well, well, yes, being Christ-like, you need to be. Uh, and, and again, I would say continue to look at Him, and it's just continuing going back with the discipline of saying, "I trust you, Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief." You know, just rather than white knuckling it and saying, "Today I'm going to be patient." Yes, Doc. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. When I try, when I try in my humanness to to imitate Christ, I always fail. And that's what Paul says: "It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me." That, I mean, that's being transformed by the renewing of your mind. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I think that's actually a good segue to the last uh, verse. Well, not quite the last verse in chapter. But uh, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. John Stott, uh, the great uh, Church of England priest and commentator, the late great uh, John Stott, says that um, it makes a point of saying this is Paul is not saying the same thing as when he said you have been crucified with Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. That is true. That is, and, and in that equation, we are passive. But the emphasis here is on what you and I are doing. Those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. You and I are the active ones there. We are, as Paul is saying, taking our sins, our struggles, our lack of long-suffering, or whatever it is, and continually nailing those things to the cross and leaving them there. Not going back and playing with the nails. Right? We are going back and, um, uh, and, and continually off crucifying. So there is a there's a right place for struggle. There's a right place for repentance and saying, I'm sorry, Lord, again, once again, I've had this fit of anger. Um, and I need you to forgive me and I need you to help me. I can say, and I have said, uh, that it is in that repeated, almost, it's not sh- shame from His end, from God's end, but it's shame from my end, saying, I, I've done it again, Lord. The same thing I've repented of a hundred times. It's in that, that accountability to the Lord Himself that, that begins to prevent us from doing those things. Because I don't want to go back again. And if, if I have to go back again, then I'm, you know, I'm just going to feel that same sense of regret, so I'm going to not do it this time. Now, I'm not great at that, but, um, but that helps. Uh, we, it, is, it is up to us, as the Spirit is growing Himself in us, because we're looking at Him, uh, it is up to us to, to crucify our desires, um, uh, to have godly desires, so, to crucify the fl- desires of the flesh, nail them to the cross again and again and again. And you'll be richly rewarded for that. Um, you know, I think that there is great blessing in do, living the way that God wants us to live, um, you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that sometimes you're you're not going to have a twinge of regret, or you're not going to have to just take one for the team. Sometimes you're not able to s- say everything you want to say in that argument or whatever. But it does mean that God is with you and that you are uh, will be receive blessing. Not as a reward, but as fruit. As fruit. Um, the last part of chapter 5 says, If we live by the Spirit, the righteous shall live by faith, where the Spirit is in us. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is working in us, growing in us, but we want to partner with that. It's available. And I, say, and I say that to you, I'm saying it to myself. It's available to us. My question is in the midst of, you know, when my kids for the 15th time that day are in a fight, do I believe that the Spirit's available? Do I want the Spirit to be, to be available to me? Or do I just want to say what I'm going to say to those kids? 
or whatever it is in your life. The Spirit's available uh, to us. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And his final warning in chapter 5, before he gets into uh, some other important relational things that I encourage you to study, we're not going to talk about. Let us not become conceited. Don't fall off that side of the horse. Provoking one another. Envying one another. That's strange. That's kind of just relationship. Preserve the relationships. That's what he's saying. A lot to unpack here. And I think it's a lifetime. I don't pretend to think that I've unpacked it all uh, in this, this morning. But um, the fruit of the Spirit is, wor- is Christ working in you. So look at Christ and let Him do the work. Amen? Amen. All right, see you in church.